C.S. Lewis said, uh, the next best thing to be, the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. You're among friends this morning, so let's see if together we can find some wisdom, but not just from each other, but from God himself. My text today is James chapter 1, verse 2, on page 6 of your order of service. James 1, verse 2. Consider it, he writes, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And you're like, what? Really? Consider it distilled joy, really? Consider it all joy, King James Version. That's a remarkable sentence in the history of our world. It's a text that requires context, but it's a text that has given meaning to millions in suffering. And I'm guessing that there are a few here this morning that had that verse memorized from a young age. Am I right? Such a strange verse, so alternative to anything you almost get in life that lots of people sit up and listen when a verse like that is spoken. In fact, I think some of us wonder whether maybe this is the key to everything. The one who wrote these words was the actual brother of Jesus Christ. His name was James, and he wrote this book that we'll tend to for the next couple of months. He wrote to the people of God scattered all over the known world then. Given what his brother went through and the followers of Jesus Christ, you might say that James and his friends had skin in the game. They knew what they were talking about. It's not just hot air. Notice a few things. Notice it's when you face trials of many kinds, not if you face trials. You will. It's inevitable. A Nigerian poet once said, when suffering knocks at your door and you say that there's no seat for him, he tells you not to worry because he's brought his own stool. Notice, secondly, it's trials of many kinds, not just of one kind. Now, the initial context of this book will be persecution and indeed death. Consider it pure joy when you face it. But James makes clear that the trials come in many kinds. Those trials might come up at work, for example. Whatever it is that you do, paid or unpaid, looking for or engaged in, Several of you asked me earlier of, of, uh, this year, what do you do if, if your work is drudgery? You know, the theme of Sundays this year is Mondays, faith and work. What happens if your work is drudgery with no other options? What happens if your work fits under the category of trials of many kinds? Well, the Apostle where James, excuse me, James says, consider it pure joy when, when it's drudgery. How? How do you get that mind? Some reasonable responses to James 1 verse 2. Number one, it's insensitive. Try reading this to someone with five years of chronic fatigue, 15 years of chronic pain, 25 years of loneliness. Another response would be, look, this is a form of denial. You're just putting a blindfold on. Suffering is, is, is not pure joy. Mind you, that's not what he says. You might say, are you kidding? 
How could I consider it pure joy? Suffering is never good, let's be honest, nothing redeeming about it, and anything you say otherwise is just denial. Or worse, this is warped. Um, it caused something that hurts you. Consider that it pure joy? If you say that, you need help, you might say. I want to argue that this is not insensitive or blind or warped, but rather it's the only sensitive way to live and sensible way to live. In fact, it's so strange, it might just be true. <laughs> and it's the ability to reevaluate your natural interpretation of suffering, to reevaluate it without, important, without denying its pain, and therefore to chart a path through it, just like Jesus did. I don't know if you've heard of the name, the name Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian psychologist. What fascinates me is that he's garnering millions of YouTube followers, and I presume hundreds of thousands of dollars, by saying something along these lines. And he says, you know, people have been saying the opposite for a long time, namely, you know, just go and find happiness, it's your right to find happiness, so you should pursue happiness. Whereas Peterson's going around saying, are you kidding? If you get happiness, you know, put your thumbs up, but most of life is suffering, he says. It's inevitable. And the narrative of each person's right to happiness isn't going to provide adequate meaning in life. The avoid pain and pursue pleasure, um, nice if you can get it, but unable to create or sustain real meaning. He says that the narrative of the death of Jesus, the most innocent person gets the most horrible death. That's the narrative we need. Even if he says he's not sure it's true, he says, I don't know what this means metaphysically, which means I don't know if there is a God, but the narrative is right, is what he says. My point here is, here's a guy getting traction just for saying what we've always believed. We begin a series in the book of James, often said to be a practical book. Well, I'm reading through it again with that lens. James marries apostolic wisdom with the straightforward words of Jesus Christ and, I believe, the theory challenges similar to an Old Testament prophet. Why are we doing this series? Well, it's because James is all about aligned living. For example, aligning faith and works. I'm going to do that in chapter 2. Aligning faith at work. What is true religion? He aligns suffering and joy right here today. There's a lining of humility and hospitality, among other wonderful things. And the aligning of these things at work is something that we'll do during the series. Through the most, most of winter, sorry to announce that winter is coming, also inevitable. Some of you will remember at the beginning of the year the story I told of a man who at church was a model member, kind, servant-hearted, and present most, almost every week. But at work, he was known as a bully. He was known to be unkind. When people at his work found out that he was churchgoing, they simply couldn't believe it. In other words, this man's faith was not at work. At work. You see what I did there? How do you get out of such a cycle? How do we work on a more aligned faith? That's what the series is about today as an introduction. Three questions this morning on page seven. Number one, how on earth can you consider it pure joy when you suffer? Verses one to three, what do you have to do? And how do you gain this mind? What do I have to do to gain this mind? So firstly, how on earth can you consider it pure joy? 
And the answer for James is, verse 3, look at it, because you know already that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, it produces patience. Therefore, it has some, some meaning in this life. Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist, um, part of the new atheists who are rapidly becoming old, he said on Q&A, the question in the universe, why, is not necessarily a question that deserves to be answered. How can you when we're just atoms? What is the purpose of the universe is a silly question, he says with bold honesty. Anyone, of course, who's breathed knows it's not silly to ask such a thing. Trials produce something. Hardness produces something. It produces perseverance. If you remain standing, or if rather Christ enables you to stand, it achieves something good. The original word is, um, it produces, it fashions perseverance. It chisels it out on you, steadfastness. It creates the circumstances where you can learn to stand over time, where you can keep on doing faith in the middle of it. You're in the room of faith, I'll come to that even as you suffer. So maybe the person with the drab job is actually in a good place. And we've been the fact that we've been told otherwise is a furphy. And there's been a lot of writers in the last two years that have been saying society's move away from God has meant that we've sought meaning, not in God, but in work, but it places a burden on something that work can't carry. Never, never designed to give you full meaning. None of that's a reason to stay in a bad job. I'm not saying that if you can move. Same with slavery in 1 Corinthians 7. If you can gain your freedom, do so. But maybe there's something about perseverance in many trials that chisels something out in you. Interesting. On one level, perseverance is heroic. And we say it. We say you're a survivor. You know, it's amazing. And on another level, and anybody who is a survivor will tell you, it's just basic. Just holding on. You know, you're still breathing. You're still here. Father of a friend of mine as an Anglican minister suffered deeply from depression. And he said in his worst moments, it was enough to sort of sit upright in bed and read a half sentence of the Bible and to pray a prayer only as a sigh. Romans 8. Maybe that's faith. Christina Rossetti, my faith burns low. Only my heart desire cries out to thee from the deep thunder of its wanton woe. All you do is hold on, says James, and something will happen. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I want that. In the King James Version it says, delightfully, let patience have her perfect work. Let her do her thing. God wants you to be mature. He wants to give you these things like a parent who wants their child to grow but is, refuses to be a helicopter parent. God isn't a helicopter God. Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. How on earth can you consider it pure joy when you suffer? I take it with maturity, God, godly maturity is the highest pursuit and perseverance will have her way, thankfully. 
Secondly, what do you have to do, verses 5 to 8? Good news, you don't have to do the whole stiff upper lip or harden up, folks, or just compare yourself to somebody else and say, well, they've got it worse than me. There's no self-help here. Um, There's not a series of motivational verses, and contrary to what some of the 20th century theologians said, this is not the power of positive thinking. This is not glasses half full. James says there's something you can do. He says, verse 5, ask for wisdom. You know, you'll lack nothing, but if the one thing you lack is um, a mind to um, do life well, we'll come to that in a moment, you say to God, show me, right? like uh, Solomon, give me wisdom. It's the one thing I want. You ask and you ask, you ask like Job, contending with him like Job, you earnestly ask. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Jesus, James is quoting his brother, ask and it will be given to you. He's not saying here you'll know everything at the end of your prayers, but rather at the end of it you'll say there is a God and He is the wise one. He knows. Wisdom doesn't reside in me or what the, thing, the things that I've been given, it resides in God, Job chapter 28, and so I'll trust Him. I'll sit, therefore, in the room of faith. Even if it's hard, rather than the room of doubt. I don't really know what's going on. I may never know, but there's one who does. So I'll ask him for his wisdom. Notice James doesn't say say here, pray for the easing of suffering, although that's a perfectly legitimate prayer. Don't get me wrong. Here, though, he's saying, pray for wisdom. I take it as possible to learn more in trials, to gain wisdom in trials, than it is perhaps in easier times. That's why the book of Proverbs says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of parting. You know, you learn more at a funeral than you do at a drunken party. Good times, you say, but really. And if you pray for wisdom, you'll find yourself, if God grants your prayer, and He will, you'll find yourself, he says, not double-minded in all you do, split uh, in this room of doubt, asking cynical questions about faith. You'll find yourself aligned in the room of faith, even if you have difficulties in that room. You won't find yourself double-minded, but rather stable, stabilized, standing. Not, he writes, like a, a person on the wave of a sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Um, Emotions in sad times, um, all your ups and downs, or perhaps even even worse, prevailing secular winds in Australia. In other words, trust God. (laughs) Trust Him when you ask for wisdom. He's generous. He'll He'll make you able to stand, and He'll answer that prayer for wisdom in trials. He's not stingy. It's not out to find fault, says James. He's not trying to make you jump through a hoop. He sent Christ to die for you anyway. In fact, if you take the bread and the wine in a few moments' time, what it tells you is he's not making you jump through hoops of works. Um, It's not a bad parent. He loves you by grace alone. Wisdom, of course, is not the accumulation of knowledge. It's not mere education. Job never finds out why he's suffering. Wisdom is knowing how to live well in God's world, and that can come through suffering trials of many kinds. Wisdom is making humble and godly choices in life's complexity. 
And just simply knowing that wisdom resides in God and asking Him for more of it is sitting in the room of faith, rather than being double-minded, saying you're Christian, but sitting in the room of, of doubt or, or cynical disbelief. So call for wisdom, which is why he writes, um, and call for earnestly. When you ask, uh, believe and don't doubt, um, believe it, sit in this room, not that room, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the winds. Wind, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because they're grumbling, they're cynical. They're in this room. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I want to explore that during the series. But just to say, everyone doubts at some point. I do. Doubts can keep you alive and learning. Frederick Beaton once said, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. What James is talking about here is not that. It's not the honest, earnest questing. Psalmists are famous for that. But rather, it's the cynical control over your own life. You pray, but you don't really mean it. Choosing self over God, because control is better, self-control is better than handing it over to God. You trust self, and you doubt God. We are being encouraged here to remain in the room of faith, struggling, perhaps with doubt, rather than agitating in the room of doubt, struggling with faith, or the faith. If I can put it this way, if you're in suffering, you've got a choice. Face this way, cynicism, no God. Face this way, facing Jesus Christ. I don't understand it all, but I'm siding with faith. A little like the man in Mark chapter 9, didn't get what was happening with his son and Jesus Christ, but he just says to Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. He's in the room of faith, even as he struggles. So you need to reckon the trial differently. Count it a different way. View it differently than you would otherwise in the flesh or naturally. You'll need a new mind, and I'll map that out in just a moment's time. There's a natural way to look at trials. This sucks, and I hate it. James is saying, don't think naturally. There's a God. There's a resurrection. Therefore, there is meaning in it and a path through it. A friend of mine lost everything uh, when she arrived in New York City from Seattle. She involved in a drug culture, gave her life to Christ and became a Christian. She decided to get to New York to um, avoid the friends that were unwise. Uh, she got a, a moving truck to move her gear to New York City and left the day before. Uh, when she got to New York, the uh, truck never arrived. She rang the company who said, no, no, you rang up and you cancelled the truck, don't you remember? And she's like, I cancelled no, no such thing. Her friends in the drug culture had rung up the company, cancelled the van, turned up with their own, in uniform, neighbours, check, all good, stole everything she had. She said it was no fun at the time, but she counts it as pure joy, because she says once she had lost everything, took her some time, by the way, hear me, once she lost everything, she realized that God was enough. She knew that the testing of her faith produced perseverance, and she will have her way. How do you get this mind, then? I want to move outside of our chosen text today to verse 21, if you've got a Bible. I'll read it to you in a moment. 
Bible's at the end of your pew if you want it. David Brooks is a writer for the New York Times, and he wrote this. He wrote, you know, five years ago I read a book by Henry Nguyen, and he said, when you have moments of pain, you have to stand in the pain and see what it'll teach you. See, when I first read that, I was really shocked, and I said, no, I'm in pain, I'll get out of the pain. But I think in some sense he's right. I want to say, in every full sense he's right. He keeps going. But the next time, but the next thing I learned was that you can't climb out of the valley on your own. Someone has to reach down and pull you out. That person is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer for our prayers for wisdom. He, in fact, is the wise one. I trust him. The writer of Hebrews says, you fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of your faith, the one who finishes it for you, because he endured the cross and charted a path through suffering. Consider him, says the writer of Hebrews, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. He's the model, that of the one who suffered the worst trial of all. He faced the full fury of the wrath of God against sin, against my sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, for me. So that he's not only my salvation, he becomes also my example. He's my model. And he's the one who sympathizes with me in my weakness because my God has experienced suffering. Muslim people will not tell you that. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. God knows what it is to suffer. That's why there's a a sense of joyous empathy among the followers of Jesus Christ. When you read the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 5, he writes, we glory in our sufferings. How? Because suffering produces perseverance. Let her have her way. Perseverance produces character. You become the real thing. And character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Amen? Amen. Ask for wisdom. Ask for his spirit. Ask for the hope that comes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can be in the middle of suffering and say in Romans 8, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Someone once said, all the suffering you experience will in the new heavens and the earth feel like one bad night in a horrible motel. 2 Corinthians 4, our light and momentary troubles, how do you say that, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Where did this mind come from? Let me set up the series this way. If you can live an aligned life, it's because a seed has been first planted within you. Has that seed been planted within you? This mind comes from a new birth. James writes in verse 21 that we need to humbly accept the word planted by God in you, which can save you, which grows. That's what plants do. It comes because God has done something incredible in your life before the suffering comes. James writes, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he has created there's a seed. It has to be planted within you when you come to faith in Christ, and it has to grow in you over time. In, amazingly, the ground of suffering. 
Let her have let perseverance have her way. It leads to growth. And indeed, <laughs> writes James, a whole new field of fruit in a barren land, a whole new humanity. Started with lives, hearts first, and then in community, a light to the world, showing all he's created a better way to suffer in this world in which you live. James is saying here, consider it pure joy. It comes from a new birth, a new start, a new operating system. And not just a new start for you, but for the whole world that he has created. So that you'll be ready ahead. You have that gospel planted in that you are loved, that Christ died for you, that he has a plan for you, a plan to mature you, even if he doesn't take away the suffering. He might. Pray that prayer. And so in chapter 1, verse 21, we need to humbly accept the word planted in you, soaking yourself in the water of the gospel of Jesus Christ, finding the sunshine of Christian community, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, reading your Bible while you can, remembering your Creator before the days of trouble come, before the cancer arrives, before it does. Because after suffering, you could go either way, and you already know this, that suffering is a lightning rod. I don't believe in God. I believe in God more than I ever have. You could become more bitter, more afraid, more angry, more sad, more resigned, more faithless, less like Christ. Or, alternatively, sitting in the room of faith, even with your suffering, even with your struggles, you become more loving, more lovely, more humble, more helpful, more obedient, more... Here's something exciting. More like Jesus Christ. May the seed be planted within us and may it bear fruit for his glory. Let me pray. Father, we have a hope that we will feast in the Mount of Zion, just meaning that we will know this new heavens and this new earth that has been secured by Christ's death for sin, my sin, his resurrection for new life. Father, may that seed planted within us give us a wisdom, we ask for wisdom now, and a, a power and a strength to be ready ahead of suffering and to stand in it. We pray this for Christ's sake.